Welcome to Insights, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's episode is on our multi-asset solutions investment process and is for institutional and professional investors. I'm Joe Staccato, head of the America's Defined Benefit Business, and with me today are Jeff Geller, Chief Investment Officer of Multi-Asset Solutions, and Michael Hood, Global Strategist in Multi-Asset Solutions, all for J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Welcome to Insights. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. Yeah, glad to have you guys. Today's conversation is around multi-asset class investing. We're seeing a lot of interest from clients on the topic, and I know that we've just come out of the generation of our long-term capital market assumptions. Michael, my observation is that there's been some news come out of that process that might be spurring a lot of this client conversation. Can you recap that for us? Yeah, Joe, I mean, I think the the overwhelming message from the capital market assumptions process this year is that we are just faced with an environment where returns to public markets for balanced portfolios are likely to be very muted by long-term standards. We're talking about a 60-40 portfolio generating returns over the next 10 to 15 years on the order of 55 to 6%. So that's obviously not only bad, relative to history, but it's also low relative to a lot of people's return targets. So that obviously begs the question or raises the question, what do we do instead? That leads more to your expertise, Jeff. As a CIO, what is it that you're trying to use? What are some levers that you have out there in your response to this outcome from the LTCMA? Well, again, the first step in our process in building any multi-asset class portfolio is to arrive at a strategic allocation or to work with a client in coming up with a policy portfolio. Again, it's not so much reflecting our short-term tactical views, but this is almost like the portfolio that you should be able to put in the vault for the next 10 to 15 years. It's going to deliver a certain turn, a certain risk profile. When we think about what's implied by the long-term capital market assumptions. While returns are coming down, there were certain subtleties that came out that were important. While interest rates, for instance, are going up, which is negative for government bonds, it still is probably a relatively better environment for credit. Whereas we've been in an environment where it's been a very US-centric market versus the rest of the world, we're building in an expectation that there'll be a benefit from global diversification. Even before we think about any value added from tactical or how we might introduce leverage or how we might use alternatives, at a minimum, what you'd see in every policy portfolio, and you'd see this also even represented in our target date funds, at the margin, you'd expect to see either the glide path or the policy portfolio or strategic marginally moving a bit more toward more global diversification away from the U.S. and a bit more in credit versus government bonds. Not as dramatic, but I think we would be leaning more in that direction, given what's implied by the long-term capital market assumptions. In your conversation here, you do make a distinction between resetting the policy, resetting the reference portfolio versus taking some tactical positioning. Why don't you, maybe Michael, you start, we would talk about how you do think about the generation of tactical views. I think a lot of our listeners are familiar with our tick charts, so maybe talk a little bit about that. I'd say that the philosophy that underlies a lot of our investment process is to try to take advantage of different information streams. We have a quantitative research group that runs a suite of quant models that provide a lot of breadth to our process and give us a consistent set of signals. At the same time, we're trying to add information from the group that I'm part of, which is providing more judgmental or qualitative views to try to contribute insights into portfolios 
that are not available to a quant model. That might be a forecast, it might be a specific historical comparison, it might be business cycle analysis. And then Jeff and his team of portfolio managers are also adding in their own judgments, particularly from the perspective of portfolio construction. Maybe just to pause there for a second, you highlighted an important point before going into the actual results of the tick chart. Jeff, why don't you add to that and a little bit more about the broader resources that ultimately drive into the final tick chart? Yeah, I mean, I think what's important, as um, Michael referenced, we have our strategy summits, and it's two days of meetings that are led by our strategy group, where what we're doing there is really reviewing the key themes and the key biases that we've reflected across every portfolio. And what we try to do and to bring into that discussion is not only bringing in the insights coming from our strategists, but also to bring in the insights that can be gleaned from our quantitative models. Also, we want to see what we can learn in talking to any of our internal investment partners. We might bring people in from the street as well. The important thing is that we're really trying to look at every decision we make from multiple angles. And I think from there, you end up having a very active and lively debate among all of the senior investors located between New York and London and Hong Kong. We've all kind of heard and have discussed what we've heard from, whether it's our internal partners, whether it's from the output of the key insights from the quant model or the insights that are being gleaned from our strategy group and making sure that we're getting the right balance. Because the tick chart, because it's reflecting not only the key themes, but our relative preferences, I mean, ultimately, that bounces back to myself and, and Jimmy Elliott, who's the co-CIO in London, as far as you know, kind of putting the stamp on that in terms of saying, these are the key themes we'll emphasize, and these are the relative preferences that we'll be reflecting across portfolios. Because when we get to portfolio discussions, I mean, there's a consistency in terms of those themes, even though they'll be reflected differently depending on the investment problem we're solving for and the bandwidth that we're operating with. So now maybe now we go back to, Michael, why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the observations out of the current tick chart? The most recent strategy summit we held in November, just about a week after the U.S. presidential election, at that time we were still processing that event and obviously we're continuing to do so. But I think that we were already prepared to make a few broad claims about the way markets are likely to trade over the course of the next 12 months or so. And I would summarize the key themes that we're operating with as being, first, a continued tilt toward risky assets, which is predicated on a view that the current business cycle expansion is going to continue and that equity markets are likely to continue to drift higher. Second, a little bit less enthusiasm for duration, partly because of the level of government bond yields, particularly before the recent sell-off, but also a view that the diversification benefit of government bonds is lessening a little bit. The negative stock bond correlation might be breaking down, at least at the margin. Third, within fixed income, a preference for credit over government bonds, again, on valuation grounds and on the view that the credit spreads have room to tighten, again, even after the recent rally. And then fourth, a preference, which we've had already for at least a year, for U.S.-based investments, U.S. equities as an overweight, and within that, a particular enthusiasm for U.S. small cap stocks, which we view as being relatively levered to the domestic outlook and insulated from the likelihood of a stronger dollar, which is another implication of the other views that we've got. So there's a contrast between the tactical view and the long-term capital market assumptions view, which you would think of as playing into the policy portfolio. Over that long term, we would expect the dollar to depreciate, which favors international assets. But the tactical view is that there's still room for the dollar to appreciate in the short term. Helpful. Very helpful. 
So Jeff, why don't you talk about how you're massaging some of these views and actually sure. implementing in portfolios? Well, perhaps the pro-growth view and the reflation theme coming out of what we would expect from a Trump presidency is something that is playing through our portfolios, which, as Michael alluded to, you're going to have a bias toward modestly being overweight equities. But I'd say a bigger tilt that we're also reflecting across portfolios is credit versus government bonds. So we have had a very, very constructive view on credit this year. I think we came into two. 2016, given the sharp sell-off that we saw in the fourth quarter of last year in the first quarter, that credit represented a very attractive investment versus holding equities. Where our view has kind of migrated over the course of the year is really emphasizing in a pro-growth environment and given where yields are in government bonds and that you're we're heading toward an environment where rates are likely to normalize, there's a decided preference for credit versus government bonds. And I think we've moved fairly aggressively in that direction everywhere in every portfolio. But again, it'll be reflected differently in an asset-based portfolio versus perhaps for a corporate DB plan where it's liability-oriented investing. The other big thing is duration. Duration, not only can it play a role in terms of diversification and mitigating downside risk, but the position that we take on duration is very, very important on a liability-aware mandate. Because effectively, if you're concerned about sharp declines in your funded status, views that are expressed about duration have to be pretty well thought out and balanced against the composition of what the growth assets look like as well. So that brings a good point because I know a lot of our clients are corporate pension plans. Maybe go into a little bit more detail around what you're doing with clients' portfolios that are focused on surplus volatility. Mm -hmm. And I think also, I know that you make use of other levers besides the views from the tick charts. I know you make mm -hmm. good use of leverage and illiquidity and thinking across asset mm -hmm. classes. Maybe highlight some of those aspects too. Well, in a portfolio, we are focused on managing against liabilities and declines in the funded status, being able to use modest amounts of leverage affords you the opportunity to build a more diversified growth portfolio. But the balancing act that we're doing when you're effectively looking at this through the lens of a multi-asset class investor is how do I balance, do I have enough hedge, which is very much balanced against a view on duration, but also how much risk am I taking in terms of growth assets? And the more that I can make choices away from equities, which are the biggest contributor to risk after the interest rate call, the more flexibility that we've got overall in the portfolio. What we've tried to do is diversify away from equities toward core real estate, toward high yield in private credit to the extent that we have the opportunity to access that. Perhaps a handful of skill-based hedge fund managers where on a net of fee basis we think they can deliver equity-like returns. But when you look at that in aggregate, the more that we diversify away from equities, we've reduced risk so dramatically, it gives us much more flexibility in terms of how we reflect the negative view that we have on duration right now. So if we had a portfolio that was a growth portfolio where 80% of the assets were in equities and we were concerned about managing downside risk and funded status, regardless of our view on duration, we'd have very little flexibility on what we could do around that. Is the subtlety of what you're describing here is that you don't think of the portfolio as being divided into hedge and growth, but you're actually managing it holistically? Right. By managing it as one portfolio, again, because we've taken such dramatic steps of diversifying away from equities, it's given us much more flexibility. For instance, we've reduced our hedge levels by as much as 8 to 10% across our liability wear mandates without risk as expressed by surplus volatility going up by more than a half a percent. Interesting. 
Well, maybe let's migrate to a different client segment. I know there's a lot of discussion around required rate return for public funds and Taft-Hartley funds. Why don't you give us some insights in terms of how you're using your processes here to help them with their problems? Well, I mean, when we look at many of the Taft-Hartley funds or underfunded public plans, come back to a point that was raised earlier uh, by Michael, what's implied by the long-term capital market assumptions is that a 60-40 portfolio is going to deliver 5.5%. And these are clients that really need 75 to 8% net of fees. And there's a certain amount of that gap that will be closed through alpha from coming from traditional managers from the JP Morgan platform that we access. Some will come from tactical tilts. So for instance, when I was describing leaning further toward credit versus government bonds is another alpha source in the portfolio. But the other thing is that where we look toward closing that gap and generally as much as half of that gap is really by being opportunistic on how we access private markets and specifically looking on a bottom-up basis where there are opportunities that are being sourced and surfaced either through our private equity team or private credit opportunities so that we think that we can earn a premium of 3 to 5% on a net of fee basis versus what we're going to earn either in high yield or equities. As those opportunities surface, you want to migrate the portfolio. And where we've been successful, where we've been able to move as much as 15 to 20 percent of the portfolio, those allocation decisions away from public toward private markets have added on average about 100 to 150 basis points per annum. Again, how do I get from five and a half to eight? What you've just described also, I think, is a little bit different than I think most people's approaches towards alternatives. It sounds like you don't think in terms of a, I have a 5% bucket to hedge funds or a 5% bucket to private equity and I'm going to fill it up. Mm. It sounds like you're being a little bit more selective. We don't look at alternatives as a panacea. I think some of the best opportunities, especially if we're going to focus on earning liquidity premiums, you want to be patient for when the opportunities surface and be convinced that on a net of fee basis that it naturally crowds out what you could do in public markets. So I think that given the fees that are being paid and given the choices that you have, I think you want to be highly selective. So that brings up another topic. It sounds like you're also thinking about a fee budget that becomes part of the equation. Right. When we're thinking about where we spend our active fees, if there's more of the fee budget being spent on alternatives, we've got to be thinking about how much we might be including in passive on the traditional side, which it's not only in terms of fees, but how much active risk do I need to take out of the traditional portfolio if I'm taking more active risk through private equity and private credit strategies. Maybe kind of pivot back a little bit to where we started just to round out a little bit more detail on the the generation of long-term capital markets. I mean, any more color that you'd like to add, either one of you in terms of where the debate was going maybe some little bit insight into the discussion within the strategy summit? In terms of the long-term assumptions, those are really anchored to views about what's going to happen in the economy over the long term. I would say at least a third of the process each year, and maybe particularly this year, is about what's that economic view. And in particular, the idea of muted long-term growth, economic growth, which is represented both by demographic factors, labor force is growing more slowly, but also productivity growth, which has been exceptionally weak the last several years. And so a lot of what we're trying to get to in the capital market assumptions is what's that long-term economic outlook? And there's tremendous debate about where exactly that's headed. And I think we've sort of aimed kind of in the middle of the range of possible outcomes. But you could imagine the long-term growth outlook either being noticeably worse or a bit better than what we're talking about. And that would play through almost automatically to the way that we're thinking about the capital market returns as well. 
I'd say two interesting areas of discussion that came out of the Strategy Summit in December. Uh, one was the discussion on duration and the other on emerging market equities. I think really an active area of discussion was what does a Trump presidency mean, where these were discussions that we were having about a week after the election. And I think when you begin to settle on the fact that you were already beginning to see signs of the U.S. economy improving, signs of wage growth improving, signs that inflation was beginning to trend a bit higher, signals coming from the ECB that they really prefer to see more of a positively sloped yield curve. You're beginning to see evidence that you probably have not only have seen the low in the 10-year, but if you combine that with the fact that the policies out of a Trump administration would be pro-growth and reflationary, that you want to be positioned even though there's some diversification benefit from holding duration, that you really want to be thinking about leaning against that duration view. So again, it was such a, a radical change from the view that we had coming in. I'm not saying it was a debate in a negative way, but I think it was an area of active discussion, and I'd say kind of soul-searching about really where we were before the election versus where we were then. Another area that triggered some lively discussion at our December Strategy Summit was in emerging market equities. This was an area, if you looked at what was implied by a Trump administration, you were looking at a stronger dollar, higher rates, everything pointed toward a positive growth environment for the U.S. versus the rest of the world, and a stronger dollar. On the surface, this looks negative for emerging markets. And yet, when we began to look, the part of the active debate was if you look through what's going on here and you look at a positive environment in terms of growth, it's something that should trigger in terms of positive growth globally, ultimately, and good for stocks around the world. But it's not necessarily that we were going to go dramatically overweight emerging markets from where we were, but we didn't really think it was appropriate to move toward a massive underweight position, given that if it's good for the U.S., it's ultimately going to be good for triggering global growth, which would be good for EM. But that balance Act, Jeff, is reflected in the fact that while we remain somewhat positive on emerging market equities, we're less enthusiastic about emerging market debt, which we regard as being more sensitive to the rising dollar as well as to the lessened enthusiasm we have for right. duration right. in general. I mean, the other thing that's kind of interesting in terms of the discussions that we've had with respect to credit versus government bonds, this was an area that certainly a view that was being articulated by our strategy group. It was a view that was supported by the output of our quant models, but also as we were bringing in some of the insights, either from our internal investment partners or from some of the strategists from the street, also reinforcing that view. And one thing that's important is you say, well, what are the big ideas that we're really going to rally around? It gives us more, a higher level of conviction as we're seeing validation from multiple sources. If it's just the output of the quant model alone, we may move in that direction, but not as dramatically. If it's just a view being articulated by our strategy team, but not being supported through the other sources that we're also accessing, it might be reflected, but not as dramatically. Just listening to the conversation in totality here, I know that there's an image of multi-asset investing that is very determined, the strategic allocation, go along that strategic allocation, move around tactically around that. But it sounds like you are set up to do things a little bit differently. It sounds like you are more nimble, thinking beyond the silos of asset classes, thinking about the portfolio holistically, thinking about levers to use beyond just being tactical, levers like leverage, levers like illiquidity. It sounds like this is what makes you a little bit different. I think a large part of what's driven us there are clients. When we sit down with a client, certainly when there's an initial meeting, even before we're hired for a mandate, it's not only are we understanding what the investment problem they're solving for, but typically when you hear them articulate what the investment problem is and how they're defining success, you're managing toward multiple objectives. 
And I'll give you a good example. I mean, for clients that are much more attuned toward managing downside risk, when we were establishing a positive view on credit versus equity toward the end of last year and early this year, we were looking at the range of outcomes, of expected outcomes for owning U.S. high yield was probably somewhere in the 10 to 15% range, which was probably higher than what we would expect for equities, but with a much narrower range of outcomes. If client X comes to us, well, not only are we looking for this 8% return, but we're really sensitive to drawdowns, Uh whether it's against funded status or just looking at the asset-based returns of a portfolio. We've got to be thinking about, are we moving as aggressively as we can or should out of equity toward credit? Because this is a client where it's not just about generating return, but they're also sensitive to downside risk. Boiling it down to a very simple thing, I think of the world in terms of traditionally focused on information ratio and value add relative to a policy benchmark feels like when you incorporate downside risk, you're thinking more sharp ratio for the total portfolio. Right. I think that to the extent that a client has a set policy portfolio and is looking for alpha against a very specific set of beta exposures, that portfolio is going to move up and down with the beta of the market. By definition, because that is really the investment problem you're solving for, and also success is being defined by alpha and tracking against that very defined set of betas. So it's not that one's good or one's bad, it's just very different in terms of how you'd manage that problem. The other is not only are clients giving us more flexibility, but as their requirements for return are getting higher, not only are they giving us more flexibility in how we reflect our views, also looking for more alpha from the traditional managers, but really giving us much more leeway on how we access our alternative platform. Again, not so much thinking, as you said before, Joe, it's not a bucket to be filled, but really on an opportunistic basis where we can identify either private equity or private credit opportunities that on a net of fee basis naturally crowd out on a total return and risk-adjusted basis what we can achieve in public markets. It really comes back to where we started the conversation as markets are challenged and you're going to need the resources and the framework Mm -hmm. and the thinking and the insights to help bridge that gap. Where our research focus has really been over the last year is how can we expand the range of active allocation decisions to include views with respect to different factor tilts? Do we want to introduce a tilt toward more quality or momentum in a portfolio or value versus growth? Again, the more we can expand the toolkit and the range of active allocation decisions we make, the greater chance we've got of generating more alpha for clients. You touch on factor investing. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what are resources in that effort? And there are two things that we're doing in terms of factor-based investing. One is basically part of portfolio construction. If we are looking at the biases that we might have through our active managers, and when we look at that, let's say we have an overwhelming bias toward or away from momentum or quality or minimum vol, how do we balance some of that in an overall portfolio context? Part of it is looking at factor-based investing as a risk management tool. Factor-based investing in terms of some of the multi-factor solutions that we've been producing could be very relevant for investors, for clients of ours, that are much more concerned not only about return, but also total volatility and managing downside risk. So the idea of getting an equity return with a smoother ride than you might get out of a cap-weighted index strategy is something that will be desirable for a group of clients. Again, really driven by the investment problem we're solving for. And the third bit would really be single factors, really coming back to what I had mentioned at the outset. That's really much more driven based on our research and where we think we are in the business cycle. Do we want to lean toward or away from minimum vol or quality or momentum or growth or value? 
I've had client conversation on this topic where the relevance of the mandate to the client just gets ratcheted up a good 2x, 3x because your points of view or what you're doing in the portfolio is geared towards their specific issues. Michael and Jeff, this has been a fascinating conversation. I just want to thank you so much for joining us on JP Morgan Insights and sharing your points of view with our listeners. So thank you very much. Thank you, Joe. Thanks everybody Thanks, for Joe. listening. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on JP Morgan Insights. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website, recorded on January 4th, 2017. The views contained herein are not to be taken as an advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction. Nor is it a commitment from JP Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production, but no warranty of accuracy is given, and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks, the value of investments, and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield may not be a reliable guide to future performance. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other EU jurisdictions by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe SARL. In Hong Kong by JF Asset Management Limited or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In India by J.P. Morgan Asset Management India Private Limited. In Singapore by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited. In Taiwan by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. In Japan by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type II Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 55143832080, AFSL 376919, in Brazil by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A., in Canada for institutional clients' use only by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada Incorporated. 
and in the United States by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, both members of FINRA, SIPC, and J.P. Morgan Investment Management, Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2017, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.